Welcome back to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. You know, we've been doing these for quite a while now, and uh, we're actually in season two. This is going to be story number four in season two. Uh, and we try to drop these in a way that uh, connect with what's happening in your lives at a particular time. Please share these stories. Share them with friends. Share them with your children and with your elders, because that's what stories are really all about. They're passed down from elders to generation to generation. And uh, it's something that I think everyone can enjoy, not just listening to, but becoming a part of. What about your story? What about what's happened in your life? Maybe it's time to write that down. Maybe it's time to remember that. That's what these podcasts are all about. That's what we encourage, and that's what we hope that you'll enjoy too. So if you can, subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating when you get a chance. Let us know what you think. Tell us how our stories touch your stories. And now, without any further ado, let me turn it over to Chuck Stead. Chuck? Thank you, Joe. This one is called These is Interesting Times. Walt Stead walked into the Eureka Barbershop. I followed him, much like the shadow I'd become ever since my grandfather had passed. This was a three-chair shop, but only two barbers worked the chairs. There was a snapshot of a third barber taped to the third mirror, but he was never to be seen. I imagined he worked only late at night to cut the hair of highwaymen and bank robbers. No one knew that I held this belief close to my heart. I talked little. Mostly I just watched and listened. Both active chairs were occupied. Tim, a short, solid barber with a buzz cut, clipped away at a narrow shell of a man whose silk-white hair seemed almost ghost-like against his bright red scalp. And Joe, the other barber, a bit taller than Tim, slicked with a rich auburn color across his scalp, he lathered up a raven-faced man whose five o'clock shadow was seven hours early. Around the base of the chrome porcelain thrones lay scattered mix of morning's work, silver-gray, strands of white, jet-black, caramel, and a touch of yellow corn, all strands of hair, like scratches against the marble green and slate-gray tiles. Wanting sweeping, I dragged my foot across them. I dragged the jet black into the yellow corn. No one noticed. Or if they did, they didn't care. Walt yupped and hallowed each of the men, and then he took a seat in the nearest red vinyl waiting chair. I walked to the magazine, spilling off a short bench, and fingered through some comics. There were many storied pictures here to be found, and although I couldn't read, this made little difference. I took two with covers of people jumping about, balloons appearing above their heads with words in them. Until it was time for my haircut, I would be ignored, and the men would go about talking as if I wasn't even there. This had been the pattern of behavior for the past few months. I had taken the following Walt around the village in the evenings, sometimes to sit on a porch while Walt smoked and talked to folks, sometimes to lean against the rail of the two-way bridge and watch the traffic lights, sometimes to sit at the corner of the fire hall bar while Walt sipped glasses of golden-colored beer with the men. And all the while, I listened to their soft murmur. Most of, most of what I heard, I reinvented to something I could understand, not unlike the stories in the comic books. I made up my own meanings to these things. Been busy, Walt? Barbara Tim asked. Working hard, Walt? Barbara Joe asked. He slapped the razor against the leather strop. We're hardly working, Walt, Tim chimed in. The men all laughed, general good humor. 
Walt laughed slow and easy. He knocked the straight stem briar out in the metal stand ashtray. But most of the burnt cake stuck to the bowl. To this he took a small pocket knife, a bone-handled double blade, and carved just enough to free the cake. Its black crusted ring fell from the pipe, and this was followed by a trail of sooty dust. Hear any of that yakety-yak, don't talk back, blast him from the bright spot, juke, did ya? Barbara Tim was asking this. No one answered. So he launched into a story about walking past the little soda shop up the other side of town. It was a noisy rock and roll that blew out from the open door of the joint. He declared there was something wrong with an entire generation for calling that stuff music. Ain't got nothing on Mitch Miller, the hollowed narrow frame of a man offered quietly. Barbershop, that's what it is, Tim said quickly. Here we are, a barbershop. Walt, we don't even sing barbershop music. Nobody wants to hear you sing, Barbara Joel drolled. But Barbara Tim sang nonetheless. My old Kentucky home, he wailed like the fevered sound of a, of a beagle hound. Barbara Joe turned and shouted to Walt, Call up Ted Mack. Damn it, we, we got a candidate for amateur hour over here, Walt. Then he looked back at the shadow chin of the man whose beard he was scraping with his razor. Damn, Slick. I dull up more blades on your nasty beard. What do you do, fertilize your face in manure? Been my curse always, raven-faced man spoke up from the setback chair. Started shaving when I was twelve. Yep. Can't never keep a shadow off in my face. Little woman won't come near me for smooching unless I lather up and cut it all off fresh and clean. Ever think of growing it? Ah, oh, and look like one of them damn beatniks. Well, they don't hold no rights to beers. Uh, how about Lincoln, okay? He's got a fine beard. He, he's, he's got one that runs right along the line of his chin. You've seen that. It looks great. And, and Grant, uh, he's got one wrapped around his face like a real statesman. And then there's that fellow Sigmund Freud. He's got one of them little bushy... Who? Who? What'd he do? Uh, he's, he's the fellow come up with psychiatry. What do you think? I'm nuts? No, 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 Barbara Tim jumped in. But this beatnik thing isn't a bad idea. Slim, you could wear a pair of sunglasses. You could walk around town in sandals. You could you could tell a bunch of poems. That's what suffering needs, Slim. It needs a poet. Ah. You go to the high school and you see they teaching about a fella called Cummings. My little girl Jody, she she come home and tells us all about E. E. Cummings. Now here's a guy, he don't use no capital letters. What are they teaching kids in school that kind of stuff for? Tim took Hollow Man's money. He turned and said, I like Whitman. Now there's a poet. Sandberg. Now there's a poet, Barbara Joe said. Walt climbed into Tim's chair, and as he wrapped the apron around him, Barbara Tim asked, What do you think, Walt? Whitman or Sandberg? Mm, I don't think much about that sort of thing. The barbers enjoyed this. They laughed hard, and Barbara Joe said, Well, that's a stead for you. The door to the barber shop opened, and a dark-skinned man with a short, curly hair walked in. The casual chatter dropped. Barbara Tim asked him what he wanted. The man smiled and said, Clip and shave. Barbara Tim looked at Barbara Joe. No one said anything for a few moments. I looked up. The man stared at Tim and then he walked past him to hang his sweater on the coat tree. Tim said, Well, uh, 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 there's a fellow over on Chestnut. Um, he, he does you boys regular. I'm sure you'd rather go there. The man, whose ebony color was so rich and dark 
that he was unlike any of the shades of color that I had been accustomed to in the village. He stood tall and steady. His face was strong and chiseled, his hair neat, well-kept, close to the scalp. He had only the slightest of beards. He said, "'You're saying you don't want to cut my hair?' His voice was cool and controlled. All around he was a presence. I could not take my eyes off of him. Tim said, uh, "'No, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying nothing. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying nothing. I say a lot of nothing. Sit, sit down. There's a couple ahead of you.' The man moved to the spiller magazines. He looked through them, pulled out a National Geographic. As he crossed back, he looked at me and he winked. Oh, I reached up my right hand to my eyelid and pressed two fingers across it so that I could wink back. The man smiled. After that, it was a long pull before any of the men started talking again. Barbara Tim, he, he started to talk about Lawrence Welk, but he might as well have been talking to himself. No one was listening. Finally, he returned to the idea of raven-faced Slim being a beatnik. At this point, Slim raised himself up from the chair and admired his shave in the mirror. He was the sort of man who could look at himself in the mirror and always find something to look at. He turned and walked back to the coat tree, where he took hold of his jacket and stood just long enough to be there too long. The dark-skinned man looked up at him and smiled. Slim nodded gravely. He walked back to the front of the shop, placed his money on the counter. Goodbye, boys, and he left. Now I climbed into the chair, settled on the upholstered kid board that Joe placed over the arms. Joe started in with a soft spray of water to comb out my tangles. As he did this, he talked aloud. Shame's that uh, uh, Ricky Nelson boy, uh, Ozzy and Harriet. He, he's leaning into a singing career. Seen him do a number on the show last week. They, they staged it with an audience of kids. They're all dancing around, you know. Selma Jean or Marianne or somebody, some girl's name, I forgot now. But sounded fine to me. Uh, not like that hound dog crap from Pelvis Presley. Having taken the knots out, he picked up the electric clippers but stopped. Walt, uh, the boy getting a regular? Walt agreed. Joe continued. He worked at the locks, and hair fell into my lap. Good, clean-cut boys they are. They are. Ricky and what's the other boy's name? Dave? I don't know what he does. but Yeah, I think it's Dave, yeah. Nothing wrong with them. The shop door opened, and a well-dressed, rather expansive man wearing a Panama wide-brim hat entered. The barbers flowed him. They called him Judge. He nodded and greeted them. I watched his expanse of carefully gathered man walk past me in the mirror. He removed his wide hat and approached the coat tree, and there he paused. He now turned and strolled back into the mirror. He stood for a long, quiet moment. I watched to see who would look at him first. It was Barbara Tim. Judge, you, you want something? You cutting Negro's hair now? Uh, I'm cutting Walt Stead's hair now. The man they called Judge drew himself in, studied this. He was not happy, and with that answer, he just turned, put his hat back on firmly onto his head, and without saying another word, he left the shop. There was a long quiet. He was gone. I heard the sound of a page turning from beyond the coat rack. Tim finished up Walt with a short shave of the neck hairs. He pulled off the apron, and Walt's little strands of hair fell to the floor. Tim said, next. The colored man, he climbed into the chair. 
I watched his every move. I saw that he had a ring on both of his hands. One of them, one of the rings, appeared to be a, a diamond ring. As Barbara Tim wrapped the apron around him, the man spoke, staring at his own reflection in the mirror. Sorry if I lost you any business. Barbara Tim shook his head. Judge, don't come in here often for a haircut anyhow. The man nodded. Could be heard you got a boy in this shop. With the emphasis on the word boy, this had not gone unnoticed by me. I studied it. I was suddenly stricken by this newfound attention. They must be talking about me, I thought. The man looked at me and he shook his head. No, son, I don't mean you. This was a relief and also a puzzle. Barbara Joe slapped some hair tonic onto my scalp. He wrung a long, thin black comb through it, and the effect was a plastered high-gloss comb wave at the top of my large, round skull. From around here? Barbara Tim asked. From Newark. I'm here on business. Tim nodded. Newark's a, a good town. Newark's a hole in the wall. Hmm. So Walt walked out into the early morning sun of Saturday. It was the late 1950s. I followed him. He looked to his left down Route 59 at the main street. To his right, he looked up to the Suffering Hotel just beyond the tracks. I looked that way, too. Those tracks were accompanied by a magnificent set of four of the tallest railroad gates I had ever seen. We crossed the street. We walked to the old GMC paint truck. It was thick with the stench of turps and oil paint. We climbed into the truck, and he cranked up the engine. And as we drove around and passed the Eureka Barber Shop, he glanced at its window and he said, These is interesting times. Well, the barber shop. <laughs> that little space in the middle of everything where different opinions, ideas, and concerns tend to be maybe not resolved but at least brought to the fore and people get an opportunity to talk to one another about the challenges of the day. So this is a place that you and your dad went to frequently? or that w- It was the only place to, to get haircuts for me when I was little. Yeah. That was it. And it was called Eureka Barbershop because there was, well, at one time there was the Eureka, the Suffern Hotel was, I think, referred to as Eureka. There was the Eureka House, which was a uh, restaurant, It'd be interesting. I'm sure somebody who's into local history, like somebody like Ken Crawl, will wind up telling me where the Eureka originated from. But that was a, a kind of carryover from an earlier time. That that word, yeah. we know what Eureka means, but that word was a sort of a signature word for a few places and suffering at that end of town. And uh, and there was another barber shop over on Chestnut, and uh, and that was more of an integrated one. Okay, and, and Eureka. Until that day, I'd never realized it wasn't integrated, and it got integrated that day. And like, like I was that. saying before, there was a time in the early 60s where folks who were going to be going down south to you know, challenge the uh, segregation were doing practice runs in the north. Yeah. And I think that's what we witnessed that day. You know, this is a little practice run, and you know, we'll do a few of these, and we'll get our chops together, and then we'll go into a scarier place to, to yeah, try it yeah, yeah yeah right very interesting though so you were there on the day that that particular barbershop became integrated yeah it's interesting how the the barber at first you know suggested that maybe maybe you came into the wrong shop but didn't tell him no 
didn't mm-hmm. send them away, just mm-hmm. gave them the opportunity to think about the fact that this shop has not yet integrated. Or maybe he was, I mean, I, I agree with you. He could have also been concerned about the customers. Do they yeah. approve? Sometimes that's what segregation is. It's, sure. it's not necessarily your direct intention. It's your concern about how this is going to look in the community you're serving or to your clients or customers or whatever. That yeah. could have been going through his mind too at the time. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it was. And yet he didn't just say, no, thank you, not welcome here, or something like that. He sort of gave the the gentleman the choice, mm-hmm. you know, will you be uncomfortable here? It's mm-hmm. almost what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, realizing that we've, we've not come there. But then I, I love the way he backs up and says, okay, sit down. Everything's fine. and Let's just move ahead. And I like the way you, in the story, I think you said there was a long pull after that. And, of course, there would be a long silence because everyone sitting in that barbershop at that moment, including your dad, is thinking, what's going to happen next? Yeah. You know, we've just crossed a barrier. We've just crossed a line. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Can I accept this? Can I do the right thing? What is the right thing? Mm -hmm. You know, we're just in a barbershop, and yet these momentous things are being decided and and at least there's an effort to try to solve, you know, this this uh, this problem uh, of of racism. I think I, I agree with you, and I think for me, just in terms of what I was exposed to, I think it was the little episodes like these that I I didn't know why, but I felt that there was a, a lot to it. You know, I, I wasn't quite getting it, but I could feel that. There was a shifting going on. You know, so yeah. there was a disturbance in the force. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Something is happening here. And and I agree with everything you're saying. Also, it's a new thing. They're feeling it out. You know, I, like, I guess I knew this was coming, but now how do I behave? You know, am I different for this? Right. Am I angry right now? Yeah. And if I am angry, why am I angry? Yeah. This is yeah. just a human being who just came in. He needs a haircut. And we didn't stay long enough for me to really watch him get the haircut and I was almost done you know and then then we leave and I asked Walt how's he get a haircut because I it, it this was also new to me I didn't see a black man get a haircut yet right and Walt said well like a crew cut you know I think he meant using the electric trimmer you know yeah. the little buzz thing sure but that made it's the darndest thing and I carried that away with me thinking so when I get a crew cut, I'm getting a black man's haircut, you know, because yeah. that's how a mind works for a sure, kid. You sure. make these associations. Interesting, yeah. And the judge, you know, the the idea that he just walked in, saw this, and made a decision on the spot. Mm-hmm. No, my racism is a little bit more important than anything else right now. I'm going to turn around and walk out. And then the the barber's response, oh, he doesn't come in here that much anyway. Mm-hmm. In other words, I don't give a damn if he comes back. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's hope. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, well, maybe we can figure this thing out. You know? It's important too to acknowledge the judge is a judge. Yeah, and you know, or a heavy weight in the political scheme of things, right? Because that's right. supposed to be fair and equitable. Yeah, this is the law. Yeah, you know, yeah. This, this this man's an officer of the court. You yeah. know, and if this is the way. He, he behaves in this barbershop. How is how is he behaving on the bench? Yeah, you know it's yeah, yeah. yeah. which again gets you right to the heart of the problem. Okay, now that's the way it was then, and here we are 
in 2022, you and I spoke a little bit before the, the program today about Donald Trump, who seems bent on on division in any way and every way that he can, speaking last night at one of his hate rallies, and that's what they are, you know, making a, an absolutely disreputable remark about a woman who used to work in his administration, who is the wife of Mitch McConnell. Yeah. yeah. You know, a Republican, and I, I'm not a Republican, but I think it was despicable for him to speak about her that way. A terrible racist remark. Right. And, and he gets applause. And he gets applause, and, and so here we are. And she's a good conservative. She's actually a good old-style conservative. Yeah. This yeah. is 60 years later. Yeah, 60 years later, and we're still having this. And and it's being kind of revived and, and strengthened and fortified by this this reality show clown and uh, and made worse and worse all the time. And, and uh, you know, it's I think what's most heartbreaking to me is that I really thought we were making some progress. I thought we were getting somewhere. Well, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I, I agree. It's very disheartening. One of the things, I'm going to take it back to the 60s now. Uh, one of the things that is challenging to, to folks who are progressives and who are hoping for a better world and trying to make it a better world is that they don't see the changes in their own time. And they're forgetting, you know, they're forgetting what Thoreau and what Gandhi talked about that you know, change is a long, slow process, and the role that you play in it is significantly small, but it's still there. And it's those moments, like talking about the little moment in the barbershop, those moments that are inching you along in a positive direction. There's going to be fallbacks. There's going to be backpedaling. There's going to be all of that stuff because it don't come easy. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's what right. it is. And uh I, I used to, I mean, we, we grew up in the 60s and, you know, the whole beautiful song came out of hair, the age of Aquarius. And, and then out of that came a, a cultural norm that in the, into the latter part of the 20th century, we're entering the age of Aquarius. And the song speaks of a, a thousand years of peace and love. And, and I think a lot of really well-intended hippies believed that. But the change has got to be you. you. You have to make the change. You can't expect the world follows you. You just make the change for the you that you are in the time that you are in, and hopefully for your loved ones and so forth. It moves out to all your relations. Hopefully that's how it works. You can't expect to be a god, you know. We get mad at ourselves when we see the same things, like you say, 60 years later, seeing a lot of the same nonsense. But that's just the challenge, you know. Yeah. That's yeah. what it is. The challenge doesn't go away. It's, it's what do you do about it. It really speaks to the idea that this is a part of the species, that it's to some degree hardwired into us to constantly try to self-sort and see our differences and reign supreme over all the groups. Somebody has to be at the top and someone has to be at the bottom. And yet, when you really think about it, of course, that's, that's an absurdity. You don't have to be wrong in order for me to be right. Right. You know? Right. And, and uh, we can find a place in the middle where the truth lives, a place that maybe neither of us is that comfortable with, and yet that's a place where we can... We can we sustain can, there. Yeah. We can get in there. And I also think racism is a, is a learned thing. Yeah. And so I think it can be unlearned. Right. 
And, and maybe that's, you know, as a teacher, maybe that's one of the main goals here is to try to unlearn the racism, you know, in, in others and in myself, you know, maybe we're always working on that. Right. You know, from the same time that we're speaking about the, you know, some of the Broadway shows, uh, Richard Rogers, you have to be carefully taught Yeah. in, yeah. in his show, the South Pacific, you know, a, a, a song kind of ahead of its time. And yet, boy, it really hit the nail on the head. You have to be taught to hate. And then uh, West Side Story. I think it was uh, 1961, 62, where uh, Doc finally, you know, sees the the way that the white kids are treating the Hispanic kids. And, you know, what's the matter with you? You make everything, you know, rotten. You're trying to destroy the world. You think you run everything. And then the, the kid says back to him, we're not trying to change the world. We're just trying to keep it from changing us. Hmm. This constant struggle to try to understand the only way that we will ultimately survive on this planet is if we pull together. If we try to, as one, overcome the challenges and the difficulties. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And we're watching that happen right oh, now. Oh, we're in a terribly, we're, we're, we're so divided. We're so polarized right now. Right. I think about education so much, a lot. And, and I think that I, I have actually colleagues who are ready to say, all right, let that be in the past. We are the past. You are the history of your past. We sure. are there. And, and so we, we don't negate it. We, we live it and live through it all the time. And America has, I mean, essentially two original sins, slavery and annihilation of Native people. I mean, that, we, we will live with those scars forever. And if we deny them or whitewash them, then... We will perpetuate them in the worst light. This is so important, and I don't know how to express it any other way than that. I I can't agree more. I think that says it perfectly. We are our memories. Yeah. Who is Chuck Stead? Who's Joe Serino? Who are the people that are listening to this podcast right now? They are the assembly and culmination and product of their memories. That's who we are. And when you're collective that you are, uh, perpetuate some of the the dark, unresolved stuff that you experienced. Then you've got work to do. You know, yeah. Then you got to dig into that and and tease that out, figure that out. You don't wrench it out because it's it'll fight back. But you you've got to work with it somehow. And you don't erase it. You know. And yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to deal with some of these things. People. When I get eventually to the little league stories, uh, what's interesting about the little league stories that I tell. Hilburn had a, an integrated team. We had everybody. You know, essentially we were the white, black, and red team. You know, we had them all. And uh, we played teams in suburbia that were all white. And I was going to Catholic school in Suffolk, which also happened to be all white. The Catholics were primarily the white people. And I, I guess I knew all of this, but it didn't impact upon me as much as when I'm playing another team, playing baseball, literally. And those are the kids that are in my class, but they're on that other side, and they're seeing me on the side that I'm on. And I go back to school, and uh, the you know the next day, and boy did they have names for me. Hmm. Boy were they you know I was I was an outcast because I'd mixed you know I was bad blood now, and it was really interesting. Now the kids in in the team, who were not white were curious about the fact that all those other kids seemed to know me. And they didn't outcast me. 
They were just curious. One of them was mad at me for knowing them. Another one was curious. Another one was asking questions. But it started hitting me very harshly. There's a kind of tribalism based on ethnicity. And it really didn't come home until I played Little League and then saw the parents who came to watch the game. And you could see the grown-up versions of the same thing starting to materialize. Yeah. And you could see where these kids were getting this stuff from. Right. Whoa. <laughs> right. You know, this, it harkens back to the last story of season one, Ogres and Demons. I thought it was a very interesting kind of allegorical tale that you had uh, put together for the end of that season. And I was, now I can kind of see you're setting the stage for some of these more challenging stories, you know, that, that are really calling upon, I think, the listeners to think a little bit, you know, and to, I mean, inevitably walk a mile in the shoes of others. Mm-hmm does it feel like to have been black in the 1960s and the 1950s and today what can we do to bridge these chasms between us because surely we're not getting anywhere we're not progressing things are not growing and expanding in a positive way when we don't do that so i guess we have to we have to figure out a way to do it i think it's important that we accept that we're flawed but that doesn't mean we perpetuate the flaws. Right. We yeah. accept that we're kind of broken, but that doesn't mean we celebrate the brokenness. Yeah. It's our job to work on it. It's our job to work on it. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, there's your assignment for the week, everybody. <laughs> work on it. Sharpen your number two pencils. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and give it a try. And don't walk away from it. And don't behave or act like it's not there. It is. It's there. I guess that just means we haven't worked on it enough. So let's keep on working on it because we can do better than this. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week, right? Yep. We'll see you next week. We're, next week we're going to do one called Large Wooden Bowls Filled with M&M's. M&M's, my favorite. <laughs> and now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their $20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it 
the children's chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the children's chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The children's chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the children's chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.